Hi, this is Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Register of Deeds. And I'm Carly Malcolm, lead for North Carolina Fellow for Guilford County from the UNC School of Government. And welcome to the Good Grief Podcast. Have you ever lost a loved one and had to figure out what to do? Have you ever felt alone and overwhelmed? Did it make you wonder why on earth this is all so complicated? In this podcast series, we bring together community partners to talk unapologetically about issues of death and dying. We answer questions about funerals, hospice, estates, and more to give our listeners the knowledge they need to make decisions for themselves and their loved ones. We want everyone in Guilford County to know that they're supported, that we live in a community where we cannot only live and live well, but when we die, we can also die well because we care. So we thank you for joining us for the Good Grief Podcast and for taking this step to be better prepared for end-of-life challenges. Welcome to the Good Grief Podcast. This is Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Register of Deeds, and I'm with Carly Malcolm, Lead for NC Fellow from the UNC Institute of Government. Today we have Risa Hanau with Risa is the Director of Education for ThorCare Collective with offices in Greensboro and Burlington. Risa has worked with hospice care since 1993 and with hospice and palliative care since 2004, which has recently become a ThorCare Collective, uh, a palliative care social worker, clinical educator, seasoned teacher in the area of end-of-life care and ethics. She is a licensed social worker with a master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania, the Fighting Quakers. And I'll just end by saying in this introduction, Arisa, I think that you are the real deal when it comes to talking about into life issues and you've been really supportive and helpful with this process. And so I want to thank you. And uh, Carly and I are definitely happy to have you with us today. So what inspired you to become involved in hospice and palliative care? Because it seems like you've your career has been been in that area. What inspired that? It has been my entire career. I went to college in Philadelphia. I went to Temple, so the Owls, and got a psych degree. And then I decided to get a master's degree in social work. And I went into the track of health and aging and my first year field placement was at a very large hospital in downtown Philadelphia, and I was assigned to the oncology unit. And it was actually at the start of the AIDS epidemic. And so my first year of graduate school was focused on taking care of, learning about, care for people approaching the end of their life. And it really resonated with me. And for my second year of graduate school, I focused in a hospital setting on a joint replacement unit, which actually gave me the opportunity to do some teaching and working with support groups. And then my first job out of graduate school, I moved to North Carolina and got a social work job at Moses Cohn Hospital on the oncology unit. Wow, you were in the oncology unit. And I did that for the first four years out of graduate school, and I made a lot of hospice referrals, quite frankly. (laughs) And I came to be fascinated between the difference of providing care in the hospital and actually being in the home setting. And so I made the transition to working for hospice, and that's what I've done ever since. 
Can you tell us what that experience has been like for you? I imagine it comes with a lot of challenges working in that field. You know, it it does, and it's often said, oh, that must be such a sad thing to do, and how do you do that? And I will say that many of us want to know that we make a difference in somebody's life, and the reality is that we cannot cure an illness that cannot be cured. And so if my presence, if our organization's presence can do anything to ease the suffering of either the person who's ill or their family, then we have done something very positive. And so as a licensed clinical social worker, as a bereavement counselor, as an educator, I've had the opportunity to really have impact in people's lives, and that is tremendously rewarding, albeit some very sad things occur in the course of the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you did a training for the Registered Deeds Office a couple of years ago around grief, and I mean, I thought you were an incredible trainer. And one of the things that impacted me from that experience was I didn't realize how some of my own employees were dealing with issues of grief related to end of life care and that kind of thing. And it was really impactful for me to see that that is a part of our experience. And I think from the point of view of the work that you're doing, oh, let me cut that. Was that as a consultant or was that no, it was hospice. It was okay. Yeah. All right. Whew. All right. Okay. And I'll, I'll start back. the The experience that that we had going through the training was I had to do a lot of listening to my employees, and I think based on your experience in dealing with end of life care and end of life issues, the experience that I see that you've gathered over your years of working in varying levels has been really important, both in terms of just the services you provide, but also um, the level of attention you bring to the whole person. Yeah, the reality is that we all experience loss and grief. Uh, Certainly, we're sitting here during COVID and, and the loss and the grief that many people are experiencing doesn't only come after the death of a loved one. It can come during an illness. It can come during so many different points in life, and it can often be cumulative. So when one thing happens, it can really trigger or remind us of other losses that we've had. And in the work that that I have done, the reason that education is so important and I'm so drawn to it is that We don't like to talk about hard things, sad things, and so we tend to shove them down. And if we can do podcasts like this and education in opportunities when we can learn and grow, then we can get a little bit closer to it when we have an experience. And that is always helpful because learning during a crisis can be really hard. Yeah. So in terms of the work that you do with AuthorCare, what are some of the services that it provides? Great question. It is, you know, the reality, AuthorCare Collective is a merged organization. We just had our one-year merger anniversary. So we are hospice and palliative care of Greensboro, 
and Hospice and Palliative uh, Care Center of Alamance Caswell came together as one hospice organization. We had many commonalities. We both were of our communities. And the reason why we chose the name Authoricare Collective is because we are a collective of services that we provide. We know that people really author their own story. We don't write it for them. They write it for themselves. And while hospice is the service that we are most known for, we really have a broad range of services that include palliative care, that include Kids Path Pediatric Care, that include grief services for adults and children, and also education for our community. So we offer many different services and really serve people throughout the community depending on what their needs are. Sometimes it's helping them complete a living will or healthcare power of attorney, and sometimes it is literally providing that hospice service so that we allow them to stay in their home through the last days of their life. Yeah. And I guess some of the, di- the difference between palliative care and hospice, that technology, yeah. can you? Yeah. And so that's, that's really a wonderful question and one that is not so well understood. So palliative care to palliate is to alleviate suffering. So palliative care is all about the alleviation of suffering. And we know that suffering can be physical, it can be emotional, spiritual, financial. And so palliative care is really thought to be for anybody who is experiencing symptoms related to an illness that is creating suffering. So somebody who might be going through chemotherapy treatment, somebody who is on dialysis and having difficult symptoms. Palliative care is really about controlling symptoms, no matter what somebody's illness is and no matter where they are in their life expectancy. Hospice also looks at alleviation of suffering. But hospice is a very well-defined program actually by Medicare that is specifically for people who are at the end of their illness. So we often think of the hospice patient being one who has a prognosis of perhaps six months or less, and they are not in a position to receive treatment that would be curable. So we sometimes say all hospice care is palliative, but not all palliative care is hospice. Hmm. Right. Right. So you've been in this field a long time. You've had a lot of different positions, but right now you're working as the education director. What does that entail? Like, What kind of information do you hope to share with the public? So it's interesting, as the director of education, I not only do what we might call outward-facing or this type of education, but I also do a lot of education for our staff. So, you know, it is not the case that our staff automatically come and are totally comfortable with some of the difficult conversations that we have. 
Not everybody is immediately comfortable with how to fill out a living will or a health care power of attorney. So I do a lot of education for our own staff because we have very high expectations for both staff and volunteers. So I do presentations on what is ethical care at the end of life? How do we have difficult conversations? How do we deal with complicated family issues? And how do we communicate effectively during COVID when we're all wearing masks? So I do a lot of education for our staff, and we base it on the feedback we get through surveys. So our caregivers fill out a survey after our services, and we use that feedback to guide the education. Then we look at outward-facing community education, and that's where I do a lot of in-services around advanced directives. What are they? Why would we need them? I go out and I do in-services like I did for Jeff and his staff around maybe there's been a lot of loss in a particular organization, and how do we learn about grief and give some time for processing? I often get asked maybe from Elon University or UNCG to speak to a class about what is end of life and and how do we approach it and ethical issues. So it's really being able to provide information almost preemptively, right? If we use a muscle and we talk about end of life, we talk about planning, we talk about things sooner rather than later then ultimately the best hope is that people will make best use of services should they have a need that arises. Right. Yeah. And those conversations are so important. We've been talking about that on this podcast, how it's really difficult sometimes to talk about these issues, but really appreciative of the work that you're doing to help folks through that. When you're working with patients and with their families, what kinds of considerations do you think they should take into account if they're thinking about accessing authority care services? So I think that it is really thinking about who the patient and family is. You know, it is the case that authority care collective is really expert in knowing how to manage symptoms and help people journey. But I like to think of the image that we are walking along a path with people. So we are not the ones that are setting the the path, and we're not the ones that are setting the speed that people are journeying. So we work as a team. We have social workers and chaplains and physicians and nurses and volunteers. And so what we want is for people to let us know what is important to them. We want to learn about their history. We want to learn about their ethnicity. We want to learn about their religion, their faith, their experiences, things that have been hard, their struggles. So really what we want to do is set an opportunity for people to feel comfortable, to learn about services, to ask about services, and then to trust us to journey with them during whether it's during palliative care or it's hospice or it's bereavement, it's really the case that 
each individual story is going to be different. And we want to listen and hear what their story is so that we can give the best services to meet the needs that they have. Mm. Are there any common questions that you get from folks who are dealing with end-of-life issues? Oh, we get tons of them. Mostly, I think the question is, why are you talking to me? We don't want to talk about it. Because we know, unfortunately, that there is an underutilization of hospice services. We understand it's, it's scary. We also understand that people always want to hope that there's another treatment, there's a cure, there's something else. So sometimes it is, why should I, you know, feel comfortable talking to you? It's also the reality that there are social determinants of health that certain segments of our communities have been underserved traditionally, and people associate hospice with death and with somehow not being allowed to access services or services being ended. And we need to do a lot of education that hospice is not giving up, hospice is not having something taken away. Hospice is a very active type of service when somebody's at a particular place in their illness. So we try to help people get past some of the myths that they have. Some people think that they can't keep their primary doctor when they become a hospice patient. Absolutely, we want them to keep their own doctor. Sometimes people think that hospice hastens death. And the truth is that hospice does nothing to hasten death, and we do nothing to prolong life. So there are many myths that are out there. And a final one I'll name is that people think only a doctor can call and make a referral. The truth is anybody can call the office and say, my loved one is having this situation. Could you be helpful? Ultimately, to become a hospice patient or a palliative care patient, we get an order from a doctor but anybody can start that process. Yeah, and I, I, one of the things that I appreciate about what you all do is that you walk into situations where you have patients, families, caregivers, a whole network of relationships in terms of, of what the family is dealing with and, and having the kind of tools to understand in the midst of, of the of all kinds of impacts on the family, whether the, you know, the person is dealing with physical and mental issues or spiritual issues or social issues, both within caregiving and also support, the idea of communication being something that's really important and listening is really important. And the idea that sometimes there are no easy fixes in situations and being able to be in that space in a way that that you support a high quality of both caring, communication and Support. Right. The reality is that, you know, when we work with patients and families, they have a lifetime of history behind them. We may only have the opportunity to work with them for days or weeks, hopefully months, but we're entering at a time when people have often been stressed for long periods of time. And we don't just work with patients and families. We 
also see many patients who live in different facilities. So we also have the opportunity to work with those caregivers. And certainly we know during this time of COVID that that has created a whole nother level of challenge as we try to take the best care of people and keep everybody safe and family visitation and distance. And there's just so many issues that certainly we we try to address. And I think I remember, I think a second grade teacher used to tell us to speak less, listen more. We have one mouth and two ears. And often if we can be present, it is about being present with someone. Mm. Yeah. And that's kind of a good lead into, you know, as, as you and, and the staff at AuthorCare are providing the support for those patients and families that are in need. What are some of the resources that you see that are, that are available, you know, both to you and members of your staff who are dealing with the difficulties of the job? I mean, we, we've interviewed a, a couple of, of folks. Um, one is Brooks Johnson at Wake Baptist, who's the clinical chaplain. And when you get into these environments where you're dealing with end-of-life issues and end-of-life care, the the helpers, the workers that are there to support those families going through those situations, you know, have a tendency to take that on. And, you know, how, what's your thoughts on, on self-care, I guess, and support? Yeah, no, self-care is, is really a very important issue. I, I will say that many of us who have worked in hospice and end of life for a long period of time, have a view of life where we really cherish every day. We understand that it's not a given. And so many of us, I think, have an appreciation, a gratitude um, for life that has sort of become a part of who we are. That's not to say that we don't struggle. So we are very clear that we provide opportunities for our staff for self-care. We have employment assistance programs. We offer bereavement to our own staff as they need it. We do things like guided imagery at staff meetings. A couple of weeks ago, I led everybody and we took a nice trip and sat on the beach for about 10 minutes and felt the sun on our faces. We talk to staff about finding what is important to them and feeding themselves. It's that old analogy that, you know, on the plane, you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you can help others. And we are expert at helping family members understand that they have to take care of themselves if they're going to take care of an ill loved one. And we then also help our staff understand that they need to take care of themselves and also education. You know, we are much more confident and capable if we feel that we are doing a good job. So we do a range of things from education to making use of some humor. We have Purple Power Day. We have town halls where we all wear purple and send selfies in. And we try to recognize that we have many different staff from different disciplines and different backgrounds, and we honor what's important to each employee. I, I read something that you wrote a few years ago, and you talked about bedside lessons. And it seems like you're in a, a field of, of work that you have probably of your career gained a lot of bedside lessons. 
Absolutely. I, for many years, actually was in administration and then took a position to go back to be the palliative care social worker because I wanted to reconnect with actually literally being at the bedside. Mm. And people are amazing. People endure and they thrive and they are just endlessly fascinating. And just because somebody is ill, that doesn't mean that they don't have a lot to offer. Mm. Well, Risa, thank you so much for being a part of the Good Grief podcast. I think the the website for Tharacare is, well, atharacare.org. Correct. With offices in Greensboro and you uh, consolidated into Alamance Caswell, so you have a Burlington office as well. Right. Both of the original campus offices are still in place, and we have inpatient hospice units in both locations, Greensboro and Burlington. And our website has wonderful information about services and resources. And I think there's a toll-free number that I, I jotted down, 1-800-588-8879 to reach Care. Okay. Well, on behalf of Carly, myself, thank you very much, Risa, for being part of the Good Grief Podcast. Thank you for, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Grief Podcast. We want your feedback. You can visit our website at www.guilforddeeds.com. You can also email us at endoflife at guilfordcountync.gov or find us on Twitter with the handle at guilford underscore ROD. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and until next time, take care.